Welcome to the Movement PT Coffee Cast, where we sit down and talk about physical therapy, health, and whatever else comes to mind during our coffee-infused conversations. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Movement PT Coffee Cast. My name's Dalton, and with me, as always, is my beautifully bearded friend, William. William, how are we doing today? I can't complain, man. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, just trying to uh, keep keep nice and relaxed for tomorrow, drink some uh, some little coffee, and have a good time. I'm with you, man. We're, <laughs> we're, geared, we're, we're there. Tomorrow's our uh, practical exam, so we gotta, we got to come out and execute and hopefully be uh, actual physical therapists at the end of it all. Hopefully, let's stop talking about it. Okay, okay. let's move on. All right. All right. <laughs> so, guys, we're back at it again with another interview. Um, this time, we are interviewing a fellow physical therapist from California. Um, his name is Mike Mark Sertica. Mark, how will you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hey, what's going on, guys? I'm Mark Sertica. I'm a physical therapist, physiotherapist in Los Angeles, California. So, I'm a full time clinician at a pretty busy outpatient orthopedic clinic kind of have a little side business with my wife, Nicole. And then I'm also, my new official title is like adjunct instructor of clinical physical therapy at USC. So I help teach in their anatomy courses at USC. Oh, nice. That's awesome. Cool. I, I love how like, okay, so we started the podcast. Before we started recording, I'm like, how do you pronounce your last name? I don't want to botch your last name. And then I go out and I botch your first name. <laughs> I'm like, like come on, man. Like, figure it out. <laughs> I feel like Mike Mark is like such an easy one to botch, you know what I mean? But uh, so Mark, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit like about your story, how you got into PT, kind of introduce that to uh, our listeners. Yeah, for sure. So I'll do my best to make this long story short. But you know, when I was 15, this is back in 2004, I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is just a, a form of cancer. Right, so I went through like three years of pretty intensive chemotherapy, and then along with that, a nice healthy dose of prednisone and other steroids to manage those effects of that chemotherapy. And along the way in that process, I developed avascular necrosis of both of my hips. I was probably around like 17, 18, so by that time I was in remission, um, but I developed that condition. You know, I was trying to manage it, like, um, I grew up very active, playing sports my entire life, two, three sports. I didn't want to have to do any kind of surgery for my hip. So I went into my undergrad, first year of college, started off as a business major, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I wanted to make some good money, hopefully. Um, I'm in the wrong profession now. But I wanted to make some good money. Um, I was good at math, so I started off in business. And then just progressively throughout that year, the hip just started getting you know more and more painful. And I guess to the point where I kind of became embarrassed because – I was doing a very good job at um, hiding my limp, right? Because it was so painful. I had a really bad limp. I couldn't walk normally. And then just got to the point where I couldn't hide that anymore. So, you know, I succumbed to my parents' wishes. I ended up going through and getting my hip replaced at the age of 19. So this has been 10 years now. And like the doctors were great and the nurses were great and the whole staff was great. But, you know, right after the hip replacement, I was in bed. I was on, you know, bed rest orders from the doctor. And I'm like, I'm 19 years old. I want to get out of bed. I'm active. I want to move. And this physical therapist, I wish I knew her name. I wish I could say thank you. Maybe she's listening to you guys. But she came in with like this vibrant smile, got me up, got me walking, got me doing stairs. 
and, you know, really inspired me and gave me some hope, you know, and at that point I decided, okay, when I go back to school, I'm going to change my majors and this is the, the profession. This is the route I want to go. Well, man, first of all, I just want to say thanks for sharing that, you know, like that's a really intense story and, uh, certainly don't have to share it, you know? And I think, uh, I think it's valuable though, you know, because we can help people learn from like that mindset, you know, uh, getting through that kind of thing. So I'd be curious, you know, what, what kept you driven, you know, to get through those experiences? Yeah. So I wish I could give a real inspirational, motivational speech for that first like year of my diagnosis, but it's more of a survival ship or survival mindset, right? I was just trying to get through the process and it was honestly a pretty depressing time for me. I was pretty isolated. So I missed basically my first year of high school, right? And I was isolated to my room. I was probably spending 15, 16, 17 hours a day in my room. Didn't really have any contact with family or friends. I only left my room to go to the bathroom, get food. And when I wasn't in my room, you know, I was going back and forth to the hospital. So the first month, completely in the hospital. When I got discharged, I went home. We're from a small town. There's not very good health care. So we had to drive three hours to the nearest city to go to the hospital. So my mom, you know, we would wake up at 5, 6 a.m. on a Monday, drive to this hospital, get my chemo, get my blood transfusions, get my spinal taps, whatever it may be, drive back that same day and do that Monday, Wednesday, Friday for a very long time. Right. And so unfortunately, you know, I was depressed to the point where every day I consider, you know, I considered suicide or I grew up kind of Catholic. I grew up, you know, a bit religious. So I would stay up as late as possible. And I would say, you know what, if I stay up, I don't have to wake up in the morning. And if I don't have to wake up in the morning, I don't have to relive this. And I would pray and I would say, please don't let me wake up in the morning. Right. And it's like, it was just getting through that first year. And now that I'm through that first year, and I went back to school and it wasn't easy. Um, but things have gotten better and I'm, I'm grateful for the experience. Right. And it's taught me a lot when, when you get to the point where you're that close to death, right. On multiple occasions, you know, now in my career, if I, if I fail, if I lose at something, it's, it doesn't seem, it's a small drop in the bucket compared to, you know, what happened back then. So that, that's really helped me form my mindset today. Yeah, for sure. Cool, man. Like, I feel like, you know, that, do you feel like that's influenced your level of empathy with helping people who could conceivably be in similar situations, you know, and to try to be the best version of yourself as a therapist? Absolutely. You know, people think that maybe because I have this hip replacement, I go and I tell every single person that, Hey, I have a hip replacement. I understand where you're coming from, but that's not the goal, right? We're not trying to compete with, with the patient or with the person mm -hmm. in front of me. Yeah. I maybe tell one out of a hundred people who I think that it's really going to help them or who I think they're going to connect or find that relevance in that story. But it's given me a lot of hope for the human body. And it's given me hope for, like I said, my mindset, I don't consider myself, I never did. I never, I never talked about my conditions. Maybe it's some kind of suppression, I don't know. But I never considered myself a cancer patient or a kid with a hip replacement, I was still Mark. And even today, if I'm doing exercises and I feel pain, I don't even link that with my hip replacement. It's just, I did too much today, it kind of hurts. And I'm completely dissociated from that hip replacement. And I think that's the mindset we have to take with the individuals we work with because they do associate themselves with this disc herniation that they had 10 years ago or this disc degeneration that their doctor told them about. And we have to show them that, Hey, listen, that even though 
you have these things, you can still do all the things that you love and care about and you know, not be affected by that. So it's, it's a mindset shift. Um, and I had that mindset set shift for myself. So I'm thankful for my experiences. And I try to provide that value to the individuals that I work with on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, that's such a good point. Like, I feel it's hard. It's hard to get people to understand that, like, you're not that diagnosis, like you are you. How do you go about, like, obviously you went through what you went through to get to that position. How do you try to instill that in people that might not have like the experiences that you had to like change their mindset? Cause I feel like that's a big part of what we are starting to realize we have to do as physical therapists to help people. Right. I think it all starts with that, that interaction, right? That very first interaction that you, when you meet them is greeting them with a smile, greeting them with a handshake or a, maybe not a handshake if, if you don't think that they're ready for it. And just bringing that positivity about, you know, I'm sure some of my clients get annoyed by how much I, I reinforce them. Maybe after every exercise, after every set, sometimes after every repetition, great job, awesome job. That was beautiful. That was perfect. Mm-hmm. And it, it might get to the point where it's kind of annoying for them, but if you instill that positivity and you do show them how strong they are, and, and maybe it's not a, you know, a, happens in the first week maybe it doesn't happen in the first month but maybe after three months or six months they really start to believe in themselves too right and that's where our our role does come into play is that we have to empower these people um and we can talk about that later but you know that goes into our philosophy of really trying to educate people and and help them feel strong yeah like obviously you've you had the the hip replacement at like such a young age and there's a lot of like traditional expectations set around like what you should be able to do or what you shouldn't be able to do with that. And obviously you've pushed that, those boundaries. Like if anyone's seen your Instagram page, like the stuff that you're doing on a daily basis for like yourself or the, the exercises that you're demoing for the public, like how do you, how did you go about like pushing those boundaries or not accepting that? Like I can't do these, these things that they're telling me that I can't do. Right. I think it comes from, I mean, one, a place of gratitude. Like I said, when you go through that experience, you're just so much thankful for everything else that comes after. Um, so I'm appreciative of that. And um, yeah, like I, I know that I'm going to have to get another hip replacement or two or three, and I'm going to have to get my other hip replaced. And I'm more likely to get cancer again. I know all those things. And that actually gives me a sense of, of urgency to take advantage of the opportunities that are placed in front of me, right? Because tomorrow all that could be, could be taken away. So I need to do what I can today um, to change those beliefs and expectations and, and things that we hear or see. Um, so yeah, it, it really is that mindset shift and, and trying to believe in yourself and just making things happen. You know, it, it's also, I've always been a hard worker, but it's also instilled uh, even a harder worker mindset mentality for me right like i've worked really hard to get here nothing's been handed to me my undergraduate degree was a full ride based on academics even though i missed that first year of school i got a full ride based on academics and i don't even know if i got a dime from any cancer organizations any you know scholarships anything like that it was just i got this you know i worked in high school even after that you know i got a scholarship i worked throughout undergrad i worked throughout grad school and it's this I said, yeah, I'm grateful for the opportunities that I have. And I, I try to take advantage of them as, as best as I can. Cool. What's your like practice look like right now? Like uh, what's your day to day kind of uh, situation? Yeah. So weekends for me, like Saturday, Sunday, 
Mondays, a weekend for me. That's primarily consisting of, you know, private clients, private patients, uh, as well as teaching at USC, at the university. And then Tuesday through Friday is dedicated to my actual outpatient orthopedic clinic. And I, you know, I have bosses that I work for. So, you know, Tuesday, I roll out of bed at, you know, 5.45, 6 a.m., whatever it is. I ride my bike six miles. I listen to you guys, uh, you know, my, my morning podcast. Um, I get to work. I'm at work from like 7.15 to probably usually like 6.30, 6.45. Um, get back on my bike, ride another five or six miles to the gym, work out, listen to some more podcasts, go to bed. And so that's my Tuesday through Friday schedule. It's just, it's a grind. Saturday and Sunday, I'm trying to make this Instagram content right. I'm trying to some, put out some good information. I'm trying to see private clients. And then on Mondays is generally when I am uh, teaching for USC. Okay. So you're, you're packed full. I try to be. I try to be, yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, I know one of the things that like I've we've really started to notice like as we put out our podcasts and social media content and stuff and like talk to people, we've realized like there's so much more that we can do as like physical therapists to create like a an earning for ourselves. And like you kind of talk about like a side hustle. So what what are some things that you're doing currently on the side that is like not like that's separate from your clinical practice? Yeah. So like I said, I'm I'm in the clinic, you know, over 40 hours a week. And then I just took on a role this semester for teaching at USC. And so they developed this brand new online hybrid physical therapy program where, you know, they're one of the first universities to do it and definitely probably the biggest university to do it where these students are, you know, getting their lectures online, they're, they're interacting with me online, and then they come in once or twice a semester to look at the cadavers and practice their hands-on skills and do that kind of stuff. So I took that role on, um, this semester, it's been great. It's been a lot of fun. We're nearing the end of the semester. We're finishing off with like face, head and neck, and then pelvic floor uh, on Monday, actually. And then next semester, I'll be involved in a different anatomy class that they have in their hybrid program and in their in-person residential program. So I'll be taking on a little bit more of a, a teaching role, which I really enjoy. And then, like I said, my wife, Nicole, and myself, we started up, it's just called Certica Physical Therapy and Performance. That's the name of our, you know, our little business. And we see private clients and generally it's like a concierge type physical therapy um, practice. So people reach out to me and, you know, I might go to their house. So I might leave work at 6.30 and I'll say, okay, I'll meet you there at seven. And I bring my table, I bring weights, I bring whatever equipment I might need and I meet them at their house or they come to my apartment or we can go meet them at the, you know, soccer field. Um, so it's just trying to meet people where they are and it's nice to have, you know, a broad amount of roles. It just keeps things interesting. That's cool that you're doing that, like, and taking that initiative. What, like, is there a particular area that you're, you, you feel like you're passionate about in physio or do you kind of just like doing it all? I like doing it all, you know, and I like, as we're going to talk about, I, I like translating or trying to translate maybe some of these sports specific principles or strengthening conditioning principles to the general population. I like being as evidence-based as possible because I do truly believe that exercise and education are the keys to empowering individuals to get better. Right. Um, I'm headed to Tim Gabbett's workshop in January with some other individuals from Instagram and uh, with Nicole, which will be, you know, a lot of fun, which is, he's really influenced my practice, but I think it's so important to, to teach people these things, right? Because I don't want to just 
treat somebody for their knee pain, I want to educate them and say, listen, this is what we know about pain. This is what we know about maybe imaging. This is what we know about regression to the mean, about all these kinds of things. So if in a year your shoulder starts to hurt, maybe you have some of the, the tools that you need to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to try this out for a week or two before I go and I, I call Mark or I go see Mark. And if, listen, if your pain is bad enough and you're not seeing improvement or seem, things just seem really out of whack, by all means, come to see me. But I promise you, no one's going to be upset if you say, save your time, save your money, and, you know, go get your nails done instead of, of coming to see me if, if this comes about again, you know? Yeah. How, um, how is like your mindset shifted with regards to that? Like when you first started practice, um, and you're treating people, what, was it different than that? When did you kind of come to this realization or this development of that, that way of treating? Yeah, it, it's been a slow process. So I started off, I know it's not as familiar maybe in Canada, but I did a residency at USC, which entails teaching and working with orthopedic surgeons and research and practice and a lot of different things. And it was a very hands-on manual therapy-based approach. And that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to go on and do a manual therapy fellowship. And I wanted to probably manipulate, manipulate everybody's back, maybe, I don't know. But along the way, you know, I started to read more research and get more interested in my own things. And I started to understand that you know, that wasn't the way to, to really develop um, long-term outcomes or, or, or to change the healthcare system, to be honest. And that's hopefully part of my goal is to change that. And so it's just been a lot of self-exploration and it's great having a physical therapist or physiotherapist as a wife, because we can bounce those ideas off of each other. And it helps having my own, you know, private practice where I see people on the side. I had somebody last week who I asked him, and I, I don't like to bash these things. Like uh, I just put the information out there and people can take it or they can, you know, they don't have to, but he's had this, you know, numbness and tingling in his arms for, for five, six years. And he's had a lot of these different treatments. And now he's at the point where he ices his arm for 15 minutes, you know, twice a day. And he uses a lacrosse ball and a foam roller. And he made his own Theragun and he's doing everything possible to try to relieve those symptoms. And so I told him, I said, Hey, listen, you know, there's not gonna, it's not gonna be a quick fix. This is gonna be a long-term solution. For the first two weeks, I don't want you to touch any of those things. And last week he texted me and he said, you know, or this week he texted me and he said, hey, my symptoms aren't any better, but they're also no worse by not doing any of those things. So he's, he's freed up, a, you know, an hour or two of his day. And I said, that's perfect. That's great. That's a success for me because now you can go hang out with your wife. You can go walk your dogs. You can spend that time doing other things and slowly we'll re replace that with something more active. Um, and I think that's, that's what I'm all about. Ooh, that was an interesting one. Like I, I like the idea of like just taking the things that he was using away and seeing how that changes things. Cause I feel like what happened there was he kind of came to his own conclusion. Yeah. And you know, it becomes one of those things where now he's just getting temporary relief. And we talked about it, right? I, I didn't just, I kind of gained his trust and it's helpful when someone finds you through social media because you already have that trust. You know, maybe you have that bit of that white coat effect, that placebo effect, whatever it may be. But I had his trust and, and we talked about it. And I said, listen, if, if you continue to poke at this and you're continuing to mess with this, you might just be sensitizing things a little bit more and, and pain can be like a bad song that gets stuck in your head. So let's get rid of that bad song and let's replace it with things that you enjoy a good song. And, and over time, we'll start to do more movements and maybe we'll do some, you know, nerve exercises, whatever it may be. But I just, 
I think those things were harming more than helping at that time. Um, so we're just curious about like, you're talking about Instagram. So is Instagram the way that most of uh, the people for your and Nicole's side hustle, like, is that how they contact you to work with you? Yeah, that's pretty much primarily through Instagram because people that I see in the clinic, you know, like at my actual clinic, I'm not trying to poach anybody and, and take them off to the side. And I even offer people who, you know, who message me on Instagram and say, Hey, if you want to use your insurance, I'm more than happy to see you at this clinic. But otherwise, yeah. And a lot of it is just their leads that don't really lead anywhere, right? People ask questions or they say they, you know, want help. Um, but right now, everybody that I see privately is through Instagram. So I'm just curious, like, have you noticed a difference between like the people that you work with in the clinic and then the people that are reaching out to you via Instagram that actually want to like get your services based off what they're seeing on those social platforms? Absolutely. Because through Instagram, I'm setting an expectation, right? You don't see me providing a certain service on my Instagram and I've posted very rarely encounters with the people that I do see and it's all exercise or it's all active, right? So nobody comes to see me and says, Hey, I'm looking for the best cervical manipulation or I'm looking for, you know, the best Graston or dry needling. They're coming to me with the intention of maybe they've tried some of those other things and they want the more active approach. And so, and like I said, you know, that, that improves my outcomes. So these people are already, probably more likely to get better because they do reach out to me and they already have those expectations that those things are going to help them. First in the clinic, you know, it is um, maybe a little bit more of a battle of trying to educate these people or, you know, based on what maybe what they've heard or what their friends said or what their doctor said. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I appreciate those people just as much, but you know, maybe those outcomes aren't as great because the expectations and beliefs are a little bit different there. Yeah, for sure. It's in that it's interesting to me that dynamic of of like our profession because I see what like you're doing. Um, I see our profession transitioning more towards that style, like that direct to consumer um, way of care. Because now you're already setting expectations between you and that person, and they know exactly what they expect to expect. They they want to work the way that you want to treat. And I see that like leading to more success. And if, if all more of the physios start to do that, like then it might be easier to start to pair people with the people that actually want to work with each other and see better outcomes that way. Right. And I know that I'm not the best fit for everybody. Right. I know that. So I do my best to become the best fit, to become that chameleon. But when I'm in the clinic and someone comes to see me and they have, you know, a very set expectation or belief and I'm not able to work with them on that, um, I understand. And I don't, you know, I don't try to blame myself and I don't try to blame them. It's just, Hey, maybe they would do better with somebody else in my clinic or somebody down the road. But I don't think either one of us are doing anything wrong necessarily. That being said though, uh, you know, I think one of the challenges is like helping people that don't necessarily exercise often see the value in exercise. Um, so how do you go about kind of trying to steer people towards understanding what the value of exercise is and as it like fits in their kind of like uh, process. Yeah. I think the answer lies within the questions that you ask, 
right? If, if you're always just trying to teach somebody or educate them or tell them something, you're not going to be able to have that open communication. So it's trying to understand why they value what they value, right? It's why did you come to see me in the first place? What do you know about what you're struggling with? Have you had this in the past? What do you think is going to help it get better? What do you expect that I can do that's going to help you get better? And when you start to understand those things, you can hopefully gain the person's trust. You can understand them a little bit better and then hopefully help reframe or reshape some of those beliefs and expectations. And like I said, not everybody is going to be at that, that time where they're ready for it, but hopefully it helps set that up for six months down the line or a year down the line or five years down the line. Um, so that's what I try to do. I just try to ask a lot of questions and get to know the person and, you know, maybe do some motivational interviewing and, and things along those manners. Have you ever, have you ever come to the point where like you ask those questions, you're doing like, you're finding out what their expectations are. Have you ever come to the time where like you think that maybe they're not ready for this yet? And like, have you suggested that or like how, how does that work when you come across someone that might just not be ready to take on that, um, that way of care? Yeah, you can have that, that talk and you can say that, Hey, you know, maybe I'm not the person that's going to, to help you. Um, you know, this kind of make me actually think about your friendly neighborhood, Canadian physio, Nick Hanna and his, no, no, ultrasound, <laughs> his, ultra, his ultrasound post yeah. you know, the other day. And I, I had a kid who, who was 15 years old, maybe two, three months ago. And he was like one to two months out from an ACL reconstruction. And he had no precautions, there was no reason for it, but he chose to be completely non-weight bearing for that time. He hadn't been doing any exercises and he hadn't seen a physio during that one to two months. And so I educated him and his mom and I said, listen, the things that we're gonna focus on is, is decreasing the swelling, regaining this range of motion, but it's also very, very important that you start to bear weight on this leg. And he was very fear avoidant, so I'm not just like forcing him to do this, but I'm trying to educate him on the importance of doing that for his long-term outcome and recovery. And his mom, uh, you know, unfortunately didn't really ha want to listen to those things. And she was very adamant that I just provide ultrasound for his knee. Right. And it, it eventually came to the point where she said that she's a pediatrician and I'm not exactly sure how this plays a role, but she said that, you know, she does it all the time and her pediatric patients and whatever else. And, and to me, I just didn't think that it, it fits his diagnosis, right? And I, and I tried to educate her on that. And she said, well, the surgeon really wants this. And I said, I'm happy to, to talk to the surgeon. You know, I try to be diplomatic about it. You gotta be diplomatic about this. You, you can't just, you know, be rude or condescending to people who don't necessarily agree with you. And I said, I'm happy to talk to the surgeon. I can talk to him now or between our next visits, I can talk to him. And then if that's something that he's really gunning for, then, I'm happy to provide that service next time, but I, I'd like to talk to the surgeon first and get his thought on it. And, you know, she just wasn't having it and come to find out, you know, they never came back. Right. So they, they finished that one treatment and they just never followed up with any of their appointments. Mm -hmm. And to some, I understand that, yes, we want to meet the clients or the patients where they're at to, cause that's where we can start shaping or reframing those expectations. But at the same time, my concern is that if she didn't believe in me and she just believed, it, believed in the ultrasound, well, when her son got to the three or four month mark and she says, well, listen, 
the other kids are running at this point and the doctor says he's cleared to run why don't you have him running and i say well listen he's not ready for it he wasn't walking for one to two months and then you know at, at nine months she goes hey why isn't he he's like a he did karate or something why isn't he doing karate the other kids are doing it and i try to say hey he's not ready for it and then he goes and tears his acl i feel like that's a reflection of me and so maybe i'm jumping to conclusions there i'm jumping from a very first visit of choosing not to provide ultrasound to this kid tearing his ACL and maybe that's a huge leap mm -hmm. that's kind of where I saw that conversation going but at least now there's the hope that she goes to someone down the road and I'm you know like I'm happy with the person getting better however means they do to get that like you might have someone who goes to acupuncture after they've been doing strengthening conditioning for me you know with me for three months and they go oh my gosh the acupuncture saved my knee and I'm not gonna I'm gonna say great that's awesome I'm so glad that helped you and so she goes to someone down the line or down the road and they help him and they help her, but they tell her the same thing that, Hey, he needs to bear weight. And that's more important than the ultrasound. Then maybe that'll click and maybe that'll set off a better um, treatment process over the course of that, you know, nine to 12 months. Yeah. And I feel like that's a difficult one because in, in that situation, the risk of doing the ultrasound and not engaging in the weight bearing is high. Like there are some serious consequences that could result from that um, versus other situations where giving a little bit of ultrasound might not be super harmful uh, for a short period of time. Uh, so I feel like, you know, there's certain situations where it could actually be a further harm to just roll with the punches right and that's kind of been my philosophy now is right that I, I don't offer quick fixes and some things do resolve with with quick fixes right hey you ran a little bit too much run a little bit less you lifted a little bit too much lift a little bit less but i tell people like, there's no quick fixes this is a long-term solution that we're looking for um and so yeah I, I have two bosses i have expectations that i need to meet i'm representing myself and i'm representing the clinic so obviously you know, I have to be mindful of what I do and what I say, but I'm not just going to always, you know, roll over as well. You know, I know that we talk about these three pillars or this funnel or however you want to consider um, patient-centered care, but if we don't start to shape that with the things that we tell them and how we interact and how we portray ourselves on social media or other mediums, then the patient-centered care and their expectations are unfortunately not going to be evidence-based in the things that are going to provide them the best value, you know, save them the most time and, and help really help them in the future. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that's a tough, that's where we're at right now. And it's a, it's a tough situation, I think, to navigate, but I think it's going in the right direction. Like I think having these conversations and people like you and everyone else that are trying to put this out, on social media platforms and trying to push this, it is, you are starting to see a change and I'm very positive that it's going to continue to change um, for the better. Right. And like I said, I don't ever try to bash other things. That's not my role and that's not my job because even if you do, and you, you probably know this, that if you completely just crush something that someone believes in, they might further retreat into right. that modality or that ultrasound or whatever it may be. And so with, social media, I try to be in that middle ground and I put that information out there and I say, Hey, this is what works for me. And this is what works for the people I work with. And people can decide what to do 
with that information. And I think that's more helpful and more beneficial than just saying, this is the right thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do. You give them that information and it helps mold their thought process. And I think that's what really creates those behavioral changes. Awesome. Yeah. Let's, uh, for a nice little transition piece here. So we are the, the PT coffee cast. Um, and we like to ask our guests how they brew their coffee. So Mark, how do you go about brewing your coffee? I know I'm not the first one to break your hearts. I got my nice cold glass of water here. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, like I know you kind of talked to Jared Hall about this too. And I actually do. I have, I have a lot of energy, right? Like I was a kid in undergrad who I would stay up to like five, 6 AM and I'd wake up at seven, eight, seven, eight AM and take my, you know, final exam. Um, so I, I do drink coffee, uh, caffeine from time to time, but guys, I've never had a, a cup of coffee in my life. I'm sorry. What do you, what do you drink out there in California? Like you guys got a lot of, a lot of good stuff out there. Is there anything that you enjoy? Like I know Jared was drinking the, uh, what was he drinking again? Uh, LaCroix. 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 Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I work next to like a whole foods on steroids. I don't know if you guys have whole foods up there. It's like a whole food on steroids. So if you want to buy the most organic, expensive $12 kombucha or drink, that's what we have out here. Just nice. anything you want, mark it up 500% and you can drink it. <laughs> and it'll heal your soul and you'll be good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that kombucha is good stuff though. Yeah. It is good. It is good. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the bodybuilding, the powerlifting principles and bringing those into your practice. I know that's something that you've been um, doing lately. Uh, we're curious to hear a little bit about that. And maybe you could take us through an example of how you would maybe implement that with, let's say like an, an older client, like someone that might be upwards of like, you know, 60, 70 or something along those lines. Right. I think in school and even after school, it's not a big emphasis, right? There's not a lot of con ed courses for physical therapy and strength and conditioning and, and intertwining those processes. But I think it's important that we learn that stuff. And especially for the approach that I like to take that active approach, it's really important to know those things. And it's not to say that the yellow TheraBand doesn't have its place, right? Because we don't necessarily know why people always get better after they do these exercises, right? Is it that they're getting stronger, their endurance is improving, or is it we're breaking some expectations and beliefs and some of these other contextual non-specific factors? We don't know. So I, I do think that there is a place for that yellow TheraBand. And, and even for you know, some of the weekend warriors or, and, and we'll get to the, you know, the older individuals, but even for those weekend warriors, it's really nice to know some of this information to educate them because, you know, when you ask them like, Hey, how did you injure your shoulder? And they said, well, I was doing a push-up competition and I wanted to get, you know, the biggest chest in three months or whatever it is. And so I was taking my sets to failure every single day. And it's just, understanding and letting them know that, Hey, if you want to, like, what are your goals? Is it, is it to improve your physique? Is it to improve your strength? Is it to improve some of these other factors? Understanding the strength and conditioning variables and principles really helps to educate them and say, listen, you don't have to go to failure to succeed. And maybe, right. If this is not something that you're really, really dedicated to, that's okay. Because there's a little bit more risk involved if you are squatting really, really heavy and going to failure or doing a barbell bench press and going to failure. There's a time and place for those things, but maybe for your goals, you know, we don't need, need to do that. And it, it's also educating them on, you know, on some of the frequency and the volume and intensity of things where they go, hey, I go into the gym and I crush it one day a week and I just, 
I do a lot of lower body exercises and then my knee hurts. And then we know that increased frequency can promote hypertrophy anyway. So we say, listen, split that up throughout two, three sessions throughout the week. Not only is your knee going to feel better, but you're probably going to have better long-term outcomes. It's just going to help your pain and your performance. So it's nice to know some of those things. And it's also nice, like we always think, and I think we do underdose people, but we think like, hey, we have to load them up heavy with a barbell or a kettlebell or whatever else. But we also know from Brad Schoenfeld and, and some of these other researchers is that, hey, you can you can get bigger and look better with 30 to 40% of your one rep acts, right? So if they want to do 20 rep, 30 rep sets, that's fine as long as it's a sufficient intensity for them. And so for my older individuals, I try to implement those those principles. And it might be starting with some bridges or some clamshells or some ball squeezes or whatever it may be to gain their trust. Because, you know, if you're an 85-year-old and you've never done any of these things and, you know, you read on the internet and you read the newspapers and you see that, you know, that that local news said if you're 50 years old, you shouldn't do pull-ups and squats and those kinds of things. Then when you come into my clinic and I'm like, hey, let's do some deadlifts with this kettlebell. They're going to say, no, that's bad for my back or that's bad for my knees or whatever else. So it might be a process of gaining their trust and saying, okay, let's start off with these easy things just to build some confidence. And when they get more confidence, say, hey, let's try this out. And sometimes I might just change the name of it. I might say, we're doing a sit to stand. Like, Isn't this a squat? I'm like, no, 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 you're just doing a sit to stand. Right? <laughs> <laughs> just down and you're standing up. Yeah. And instead of saying a deadlift, you know, I might just, you're picking something up off the floor. Right. They don't necessarily know. They don't necessarily care. And I'm not trying to be deceptive. I'm just trying to help them do the exercise that's going to get them better. Right. And so, you know, for example, I, I have an individual who's 79 and he came with like right shoulder pain, low back pain and and some other things. And he just really wants to play golf. And so we've been doing some of that stuff. And it, it's it's no different. Like I said, I made a story about it the other day. There's no such thing as a young person exercise. It's just exercise. And you would still put maybe some of those more difficult compound or powerful movements at the front of the program. Yeah. Right. So when he comes in and he's all, he also wants to work on balance. I didn't mention that. And I said, listen, we can stand on one leg and we can do a tandem balance and tap a balloon. And I love that stuff. And people love that stuff. It's a lot of fun. But I say, we have to make it more challenging. You know, we know that these, these things get, um, just not as good as you get older. So let's work on it. So I ha he was a basketball coach for 40 years. So I said, let's, hey, let's practice some jumping. He goes, I'm not too sure about it. And I said, do what you can. See what you can do. And we did like five, five rounds of jumping. And he loved it. And he's like, this is, this is, I can't remember the last time I jumped. Right? And then we go on and, and we go to the, the plinth, the, the high-low table. We lower it to the bottom. And I have him doing a, an explosive sit-to-stand ball, throwing the med ball. And to him, it kind of feels like basketball practice. Right? But to me he's being as explosive as possible in that concentric movement. And then I have him go really slow on that eccentric and he feels like, wow, you know, my balance in my golf swing is better. And then we go, okay, let's do some pal off presses. Right. So it's not, okay, let's get the wand. Let's get the one pound pink dumbbells. And, and it's educating them as well. That soreness is okay. I, I pushed him too hard one day and his back, uh, his, uh, his back was really sore and his golf game suffered the next day. Not because he was like in a lot of pain, it's just he was stiff. And I was like, all right, I'm sorry, my bad. We did a little bit too much. It's good to know. We won't do as much next time. And he was completely okay with it. Nice, yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it just helps with so many things. You know, we, our job, we focus on pain, but it goes so much 
further than that. It goes balance, you know, when they're loading or we're going to increase their bone density, hopefully, you know, it's, it can help with so many different cognitive processes. So, you know, let's, let's get them moving. Let's get them sweating. Yeah. I think you made a lot of good points there. I think like a big part of it is one, like you said, you need to understand those those principles of strength and conditioning and exercise to be able to implement that. So as physical therapists, I think that's an important thing for us to understand, but also like at the same time, you have to be able to interact with the person to understand their goals. And I think that's a key thing that like you need to be able to prove to those people that, okay, here's why we're implementing these exercise and strength and conditioning principles in order to get you back to like golf, like you, like you're saying. And I had that similar experience with someone that I was working with in the clinic the other day. Um, about like they had trouble picking up their, their, their grandson and like trying to make them understand that, okay, like this is why we would do like an elevated kettlebell deadlift to start, you know what I mean? To like build up your strength. Like, and they, they never deadlifted before or did any of that, but like having them understand why we're doing this and why we're implementing these strength and conditioning type principles to get her strong enough to be able to pick up her grandson again, that she had no trouble doing before. You know what I mean? Like those things are so key. Right. And it doesn't always have to be complex, right? Like mm-hmm. if, if they're, if you have somebody who you're training, who's working towards their one rep max and they're a power lifter. Yeah. Every little detail might have to be perfect. But when I got, you know, someone who's 80 years old, I'm not going to, I don't necessarily put a dowel behind their back or have them practice 10 different ways to deadlift before we do it. I say, sit your butt back, bend your knees a little bit, pick this weight up off the ground. And that's good enough for me. And then we progress that. And as long as there's no like, crazy deviations that's fine because you know what is normal anyways um so yeah yeah i think it, and, and there's a lot of like opportunities there to just help them like uh learn ways to be a little bit more efficient perhaps like you know maybe like you do that and they pick the weight up like six inches in front of them or something like that and it's an opportunity to just be like hey you know you move that bad boy a little bit closer you might be able to pick it up a little more confidently, you know? Right. Yeah. Like, and unless you actually like try those things out and aren't super fearful of what might happen, if you do something that looks like a normal, uh, strength and conditioning exercise, strengthening exercise, uh, you wouldn't get those opportunities to explore that kind of thing. And you have to give them those successes, right? Like, even if you think they're capable of lifting 50 pounds off the ground, they might not know that they're capable of that. And so, and they might not be willing to try that. So you show them that they can lift 10 pounds and that's where that reinforcement that we talked about before and showing them how exercise can be a good thing and and tell them, wow, great job. Yeah. That was amazing that you did that. You haven't done that in a year. I think you could do way more. What do you think? And you know, they feed off of that positive energy. So, you know, set them up for success and then you just build off of that. Yeah. Like proving it to them, you know, and setting actual positive experiences. I think that's, that's a big thing that we talked about is like, uh, not just educating about pain science and stuff, but actually having people experience, um, what it feels like to be able to do things and stuff like that. And, and that combined with some of the education kind of like actually drives it, drives the outcome. And sometimes that's all, the biopsychosocial approach or, you know, pain science is, is mm-hmm. just, just being positive, getting to know the person, breaking down any barriers. It's not even necessarily teaching them about pain. It's just providing a, 
positive environment for them to feel safe in. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Um, Mark, we're curious to know, like, what's, what's next for you? Like what's going on? Like, I know you got, a, I know you got a ton going on right now, but is there anything coming down the pipe that you're, that you're exploring or that you and Nicole are thinking about doing? So obviously I just want to continue expanding, you know, social media stuff. I'm considering doing some YouTube, maybe some longer, like real research reviews and making a little bit more applicable. Um, Nicole potentially has some really big news in the making. So whatever happens with her might determine the rest of our lives. So we'll stay tuned for that. Um, And yeah. It's cool. It's never, it's never what you expect, right? Never. Uh, awesome. Do you want to just leave where like people can find you, get in contact, learn more about you and what you're doing? Absolutely. So Instagram at Dr. Sertica PT, Facebook, just type in my name, Mark Sertica, Twitter, Mark Sertica. And if you're in LA guys, if you want to get out of the cold, Yo. Do is, is hit me up. Tony Camella, never met the guy before. And he came down for a Greg Lehman course, crashed on my couch. I just made sure that he wasn't a serial killer and he was okay with dogs. So come hang out. Yeah. We're seeing it right now. We're not serial killers. And we will be finding a flight to California because it's so cold here and we'll be sleeping on your couch. All right. Let's do it. Sooner rather than later. All right. Cool, man. Thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we Thanks really appreciate you taking the time. I know you got a lot going on and we, we really do value the content that you put out. Like you and Nicole both, like the stuff that you guys have put out We before we even started doing what we're doing now. We, we follow you guys and learned a lot. So we really appreciate it. Thanks, fellas. I appreciate you having me. All right. Cheers. We'll talk to you soon.